A Race with Love and Death by Richard Williams, read by the author. Chapter 17. The Wall of Death. The year is 1937, and Richard Seaman, after a successful year campaigning a heavily modified Delage in voiturette races, has just signed up as a reserve driver with the Mercedes-Benz team for a retainer of a thousand Reichsmarks a month, about a thousand pounds a year, plus prize money and bonuses. He's rented a lakeside villa in Bavaria and is preparing, at the age of 24, for his first full season in Grand Prix racing. The formalities of Dick's contract weren't completed in time for the new recruit to join a parade during the Berlin Motor Show at the end of February, when the Mercedes and Auto Union teams lined up their cars and drivers to be presented to Adolf Hitler outside the Reich Chancellery. Thousands marvelled at the sight and the sound as Rudolf Caracciola, Manfred von Brauchitsch, Ben Rosemeyer and Hans Stuck drove the Silver Arrows through the Brandenburg Gate down the Charlottenburg Chaussee and all the way to Adolf Hitlerplatz, the square close to the exhibition halls, a five-mile drive along a dead-straight boulevard that was intended to become, in Hitler's dream, the meridian of a new imperial Berlin. A month later, Seaman and Tony Birch, his manager, flew to Milan to meet up with the rest of the team. They were quartered at the Hotel Principe e Savoia, close to the city centre, a sign of the first-class conditions in which Seaman would now be going about his work. His upbringing had made Dick more than a social match for Caracciola and von Brauchitsch, but his months of work developing the Delage with Julia Ramponi, Jock Finlayson and Lofty England the previous season rendered him equally comfortable in the company of the genial and sympathetic Lang and the team's mechanics. Rudolf Uhlenhout, the chief designer, who was used to receiving little or no constructive information from his two leading drivers, appreciated the feedback from a pair of eager young men keen to play a role in improving the car's performance. One of the new W125 machines had been brought down to Monza, along with a couple of the older W25s on three of the racing team's fleet of dark blue diesel-engined Mercedes trucks, with a fourth carrying spare parts and tools. Dick was able to report to his friend George Monkhouse that the new car seems quite promising, although it's a bit early to be over-optimistic. Uhlenhout and the mechanics worked on the car over the Easter weekend, enabling the non-technicians to have some time off. Alfred Neubauer, and the, man, the team manager, and his wife headed for the coast at Rapallo, while Caracciola went off to Lake Garda. Seaman and Birch took a day trip to Como, where they admired the Villa d'Este, a lakeside hotel that had begun life as the summer residence of a 16th century cardinal. Work resumed following the break with such intensity that there was no time to go into the town for lunch. So the Neubauers and Lang cooked meals for the assembled company on an electric stove in the workshop lorry. But on the Friday, after the new car had been returned to Stuttgart for further work, Dick was out practising in an old W25 when he gave the car too much throttle coming out of one of the chicanes at around 70 miles an hour. 
The rear end swung round, he overcorrected, and the car left the track and hit a large tree before he'd had the chance to take further action. He was thrown out and found himself sitting on the grass with a pain in his left knee. The engine, having detached itself from the chassis, was lying in the road. The wreckage was starting to burn, but he managed to get himself to a safe distance, hampered by what turned out to be a fractured kneecap. It was a sharp reminder that he was making the move from the 180 horsepower of the Delage to more than double that figure in a car of roughly the same weight. If he was expecting a rocket from the team manager, he was to be pleasantly surprised, as he told Monkhouse in a letter written from his hotel bed. Neubauer didn't seem to mind too much. In fact, he seemed to think that it was rather funny and consoled me with the information that Caracciola, Fagioli and Braukic had all crashed when they started driving these cars in 1934, i.e. too much gas after a corner. Well, one lives and learns. Neubauer's attitude might have been a little less relaxed had Seaman destroyed one of the latest cars. I'm coming to the conclusion, Dick told Monkhouse, that one is always apt to get caught out at the beginning of the season, for one tries to dice in the same way as one had been doing at the end of the previous season without realising that one is very lacking in practice. He also mentioned going back to examine the scene of the accident and picking up pieces of the Mercedes alloy bodywork. I must say, I was absolutely amazed at the lightness of the material they use. It's much lighter than anything I've ever felt before, and is obviously something rather special. In his reply, Monkhouse correctly speculated that the metal in question was probably magnesium alloy. He also mentioned that his, the publication of his first book of photographs, Motor Racers, to which Dick had contributed a short essay titled What is Grand Prix Racing?, had been delayed by problems with the paper supply. After a plaster cast had been put on his leg in a Milan clinic, Dick wrote to his mother, mostly in reassuring terms, but also pointing out that he'd recently sat down to a meal at a table of 13, that his hotel room number was 113, that he'd used cabin number 13 at a swimming baths, and that the accident had taken place on a Friday. Perhaps he wasn't aware that in Italy, where the crash happened, fare tredici is considered a sign of good fortune. More cheerfully, there was an enjoyable rendezvous with the princes Chula and Bira visiting Milan, although they told him over lunch that their early experiences with the Delage, for which they'd paid Dick a lot of money, had been disappointing, Bira finding the engine response slow and the gearbox tricky. Discharged from the clinic with his legs still in plaster and his cuts and bruises healing, Dick took the train to Munich before being driven to his home at Ambach on the shore of the Starnbergersee. Tony Birch's wife, Barbara, an army officer's daughter, was acting as housekeeper while also looking after their young son. The owner of the house, who lived in a property next door, sent her maid over to them with food while a new boiler and kitchen sink were being installed. Nine days later, following a return to Munich for the removal of the plaster, Dick was deemed fit enough to join the Mercedes party setting off for Tripoli and the start of the team's season. Although Dick had been engaged as a reserve driver, 
Neubauer chose to thrust him straight into the action in a four-car entry for the lucrative Grand Prix at the Malaha circuit, laid out on a salt lake outside the Libyan capital. First held in 1925, the race had close links to the Italian National Lottery, and in 1933 had been the subject of rumours that a group of leading Italian drivers had conspired to fix the result. For the government in Rome, keen to promote a sense of empire and also to exploit the potential for tourism along Libya's Mediterranean shore, this was an important event. The Governor-General, Marshal Italo Balbo, having helped Mussolini to power, had been given the job of building up the Air Force before being charged with consolidating Italy's power by merging the territories of Tripolitania, Saranaica and the arid Saharan region of Fezzan into one country. His support of spectacular displays of Italian prowess in the air, including massed transatlantic flights of flying boats, had brought him worldwide fame making him a natural impresario of the Grand Prix. The four drivers made their separate ways to Naples, where they and the transporters carrying the cars, five of the new W125s, including a spare, would be taken on board the Città di Palermo. Dick drove down in his new black team-issued 2.3-litre Mercedes saloon, making a side trip to Pompeii before joining the party for the 30-hour voyage through the Strait of Messina and across the Mediterranean to Tripoli, where they were given rooms in the Oadan Hotel, a handsome seafront complex of buildings designed by a prominent Italian architect in the Moorish style. Opened the previous year, containing a casino, a 500-seat theatre and a Turkish bath, and with just 50 guest rooms. It was described by an American reporter as the Waldorf Astoria of North Africa. The Uadam was also part of Balbo's scheme to promote Tripoli as a tourist destination, which included backing archaeological projects such as the excavation of the Basilica at Leptis Magna and the restoration of the Temple of Jove in Tripoli itself, all intended to highlight the legacy of the Roman occupation. Arriving a week before the race, Dick and his teammates were shown the sights. The track, too, made an impression. Eight miles long, lined with palm trees, it played to the German team's strengths, and the 1935 and 36 races had resulted in wins for Caracciola's Mercedes and Achille Varzi's Auto Union. Balbo's made the circuit probably the finest and certainly the fastest road circuit in the world and provided it with a magnificent concrete grandstand surrounded by lawns and brilliant flowering shrubs, Dick would write in a post-race article for the auto car. The pits are done in a lavish scale, all in snow-white concrete, and all very spick and span, he continued. In fact, it's the ascot of motor racing circuits. But its high average speed would, as he observed, extract a price in terms of tyre wear. In the 40-lap race, some drivers would need to change their tyres half a dozen times or more. During the practice sessions, Dick found that his swollen left knee was still not flexible enough to allow him to get the sole of his foot on the clutch pedal properly. Instead, he was forced to use his heel. Luckily, a lap of Malaha required few gear changes. 
The new car, he was pleased to find, matched the top speed of the auto unions, but had the advantage of better acceleration and braking, and, thanks to Uhlenhout's work on the suspension, superior road holding. Before the start, the final arrangements for the lottery were made. Many thousands of tickets had been sold all over Italy at 12 lira each, with a first prize of 6 million lira, about £30,000, or almost £2 million today. A few days earlier, 30 tickets had been drawn from the total entry and their owners invited, with great publicity, to Tripoli. Immediately before the race, each ticket and the number of each of the 30 competitors in the race were paired in a draw made by a blindfolded member of the Italian Youth League. In order to avoid collusion of the sort that had brought previous editions of the race into disrepute, the draw was made after the cars and their drivers had assembled on the grid, where they were guarded by ranks of Ascari, the African troops who were now part of the Italian army and who, according to Lang, were so startled when the engines finally started up that they broke ranks and scattered. The start was enlivened for seamen when, in the row ahead, the hubcaps of Lang's car and Ernst von Delius's auto union touched as they accelerated away. They slowed, Dick slowed in reaction, and so, just behind him, did Tazio Nuvolari, who needed to perform a lurid manoeuvre in his auto union to avoid an accident. Caracciola, Stuck, Rosemeyer and von Braukich swapped the lead in the early stages before tyre changers shuffled and reshuffled the order. By half distance, as the cars screamed past the tall white timing tower that stood opposite a modern cantilevered grandstand offering shade to 10,000 spectators, Lang had moved into what would prove to be a decisive lead. His delicate touch meant that he needed only two pit stops while he sweated off four and a half pounds in the extreme heat on his way to victory. Both Caracciola and Seaman were hindered by problems they put down to sand blowing into the air intakes and clogging their superchargers. They finished sixth and seventh respectively behind four auto unions. Von Braukic's split radiator made him the only retirement of the eight German cars. Uhlenhout later admitted that Siemens' problem had actually been caused by a mechanic's rag left under the bonnet, a most untypical oversight. Seaman was discussing the disappointment with Caracciola in the pit lane when Luigi Fagioli, who'd finished fifth in an auto union, charged up to them and began shouting at Rudy, claiming to have been balked. Picking up a copper-headed wheel hammer from the pit counter, he hurled it at his former teammate, narrowly missing both Mercedes drivers before being dragged back to his own pit, still bellowing accusations. After Lang, in ecstasy after his first Grand Prix victory had received his trophy from Marshal Balbo, he was engulfed by the spectators. Among them, ready to bestow a kiss on his cheek, was a butcher from Piacenza, the winner of the lottery, now a rich man, although Lang recorded in his memoirs that the beneficiary of his victory subsequently closed his business, gambled the millions away and ended up in a mental home. A lavish party followed the race. Never imagining that he'd win, Lang had neglected to pack formal clothes. 
He and his wife stayed in their hotel room out of sheer embarrassment until Neubauer arrived to summon them. Lang tried to persuade his team manager to take his place, pleading a lack of suitable attire. You'll be there, Neubauer told him, even if you're only wearing your bathing trunks. As fate would have it, once they'd made their way to a floodlit government palace through the ranks of Askari guards, the lounge-suited Lang was seated at the banquet opposite Hans Stuck, who was resplendent in a perfectly tailored set of white tails. After a two-day drive back from Naples to his lakeside home in Bavaria, Dick got to grips with a new toy, a 12-foot international-class sailing dinghy he'd bought to use on the calm waters of the Starnbergersee. Like most things, it's quite easy at first, but very difficult to do properly, he told Monkhouse. His next racing appointment was in Berlin, where Mercedes had entered a five-strong team in the Avesrennen. The drivers had been booked into the Hotel Savoy on Fasanenstrasse, just off, off the Kurfürstendamm and close to one of Berlin's largest synagogues, which had been closed 12 months earlier on the orders of the Nazi authorities. Also staying at the Savoy was Charlie Martin, who'd entered his ERA in the Voiturette race, and their friends John and Desbo Cornwall, a London stockbroker and his Greek wife. In the lobby, Seaman and Martin bumped into John Dugdale of the autocar, Dick's old friend from their days at rugby school, and that night they all went out together. Seaman and Dugdale arranged to go boating the following morning before practice for the Grand Prix cars. Dick drove them to Gatto on the Havelsee, where they hired rowing boats and watched a light plane circling over the lake. It was the famous single-engined four-seater Messerschmitt Typhoon, belonging to Ellie Beinhorn and containing her husband, Bernd Rosemeyer. There was time for a lunch of iced chicken soup, cold roast beef with salad and vanilla ice cream with chocolate sauce before they set off for the circuit. The last Kaiser had still been in power when the foundations of Avus, the Automobilverkehrs- und Ubunstrasse, Automobile Traffic and Training Road, were laid by Russian prisoners during the Great War. The original plans had been made as part of a scheme for a national motorway long before Hitler launched his Autobahn project. Its layout could hardly have been simpler. A dual carriageway with a strip of grass down the middle, with a shallow banked loop at one end and a hairpin at the other. Opened in 1921, it became a public toll road between Berlin and Potsdam when not being used for race meetings. No race was held in 1936 because work was underway to give the circuit its defining feature, a 43-degree bank turn at the north end, 60 feet high and surfaced with bricks, with no lip or retaining barrier. Pathé News called it the Wall of Death. This new theatre of speed, devised to ensure that Germany had a circuit faster than Tripoli, encouraged Mercedes and Auto Union to bring to circuit racing the theories of streamlining used in their record attempts. They were helped by the decision of Korpsführer Adolf Hünlein, Hitler's Minister for Sport, to lift the normal weight and engine restrictions governing Grand Prix racing, freeing the German teams to exploit their advanced technology to the full. 
Their cars arrived at the track with swooping bodywork that enclosed all four wheels, making them look even more impressively futuristic. Mercedes entered five cars, a trio of the streamliners for their three leading drivers and a pair of conventional open-wheeled models for Seaman and Freddy Zander, the cars of von Braukitsch and Zander having 12-cylinder engines. Each car had a swastika in a circle painted on either side of the tail behind the driver's headrests. Their rivals from Auto Union entered two Porsche-designed streamliners and two open-wheeled cars. Zander was sidelined during practice when his engine blew up as a result, it was said, of changing to first gear instead of third. While Seaman discovered that the open-wheel bodywork cost him around 12 miles an hour against the top speed of his teammates' streamlined cars, despite the extra weight of their panelling. On the morning of the race, Seaman invited Dugdale to breakfast in his hotel room. It was difficult to realise as we looked out at the fresh green garden below, the journalist wrote in his diary, that within an hour Dick would be racing at 200 miles an hour, passing and repassing at fantastic speeds, with only about 30 feet of road to share. He showed little sign of strain, he never did, but perhaps he was quieter than usual. Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister, was the guest of honour on race day, arriving with his wife, Magda, in a large open Mercedes, surrounded by columns of motorcyclists. Among the hors d'oeuvre was a race for voiturettes, won by Charlie Martin, the only British entrant. When Hoonline placed the laurel wreath around his neck and God Save the King was played over the public address system, the vast crowd responded by raising their right arms. Poor Charles, Dugdale recounted, always rather bashful, was quite overcome by his reception and walked self-consciously down the huge expanse of concrete, acknowledging chair after chair until his arm became quite tired of giving the Nazi salute. The streamlined Grand Prix cars had been reaching top speeds on the straights of an unprecedented 240 miles an hour in practice, and average lap speeds of around 170 miles an hour made the teams nervous about tyre wear. From time to time, Lang had noticed an alarming phenomenon. When he approached top speed, the nose of his streamliner would start to lift. Holes were cut in the bodywork in an attempt to allow trapped air to escape and keep the car on the ground. Rosemeyer, who'd been testing on the track before the meeting began, set the fastest time in practice at 4 minutes 9 seconds, well over 170 miles an hour. Dick's time was 20 seconds slower. The race was to be run as two seven-lap heats and an eight-lap final. Fearful of bad publicity from the inevitable humiliation on such a high-speed track, Alfa Romeo had withdrawn their official entries. That left the contest to the eight German cars, two private Maseratis and one private Alfa. Five cars started the first heat, Caracciola finishing first with Dick fourth, sandwiching the auto unions of Rosemeyer and Von Delius. The pace, Seaman noted, hadn't been high since no one wanted to risk a blowout. Von Braukic won the second heat from Rudolf Haas's Auto Union, with Lang relegated to third following a tyre change. After Neubauer protested 
that Hasser had obstructed Lang, the order of second and third, was reversed. For the final, the team manager concocted a strategy. Caracciola would set the pace, expecting to make a tyre stop. Von Brakic and Lang would try to go through non-stop, as would Seaman, who would be hoping to keep the open-wheeled auto-unions behind him. But von Braukic retired before half-distance, with no oil in his gearbox, followed by Caracciola with a similar problem. Heat retained inside the streamlined bodywork had melted the solder on a pipe, and the oil had leaked away. Lang's newer car had the pipe to the gearbox attached by a flange, with no soldering. Now he was leading the race, with Seaman close behind, but the Englishman needed a pit stop when his overheated tyres started throwing their treads. Back on the track, he fought for a while with Rosemeyer, who'd also made an early stop, but the effort put too much strain on the new tyres, and he threw another tread on the final lap, forcing him to slow drastically. Lang won his second race in a row, driving, in his own words, like a tightrope walker as he nursed his tyres. Dick trailed in fifth behind the auto unions of Delius, Hasser and Rosemeyer, ahead only of the last finisher, the Maserati of the wealthy Hungarian amateur Lajlo Hartmann. Why had Dick's tyres disintegrated while Lang's remained intact? The team's explanation was that the extra speed of the streamliner compared to the open wheeler meant that its driver could operate at a reduced throttle opening. Extremely interesting, Seaman said, sounding unconvinced. What a pity they didn't think of it before. The crowd of 380,000, packed along the sides of the autobahn and not at all bothered by the absence of serious competition for their teams, had enjoyed a magnificent spectacle and Mercedes had won an important victory in front of the assembled dignitaries. Magda Goebbels presented Lang with a trophy so big and heavy that it would take two mechanics to carry it away. The winner's average speed of 162 miles an hour made it the fastest road race ever held, a distinction it would retain for 20 years. This had been the apotheosis of a certain idea of motorsport, the poster image for an entire philosophy. Gleaming projectiles with blood-red numbers on silver bodywork, created by boffin geniuses in shapes drawn from science fiction, driven at seemingly impossible speeds by supermen in white uniforms and dark-lensed goggles around a purpose-built track of such daunting splendour that it seemed part of Hitler's plans for a majestic world capital. Here was a hint of the Felthauptstadt Germania, the world capital of the new German Empire, of Albert Speer's drawings, for which the 1936 Olympic Stadium had been a first step. At Arvis, the chariot races of Imperial Rome were being remade for the 20th century, leaving a worldwide audience awestruck and conveying a message of unanswerable technological superiority. When our cars can do this to the opposition, just imagine what else we might do. After a ceremony at the restaurant in the modernistic new circular building next to the banked North Curve, Dick returned to Berlin. He'd arranged to meet his friends, including Charlie Martin, Tony Birch, John Dugdale and the Cornwalls, in the rooftop restaurant of the Eden Hotel, opposite the main entrance to the zoo. 
Late in the evening, as they ate strawberries and cream, the roof slid open to reveal the summer night sky. Later still, they went on to Chiro's bar on the Rankerstrasse, a short walk away. It was one of those Berlin nightclubs where jazz-tinged music was played in defiance of Nazi disapproval. The band's singer was an English girl known to Birch, of course, Dugdale remarked rather pointedly. There they also encountered the Rosemeyers and Nuvolari, who, despite not being involved in the race, had turned up to watch while enjoying a weekend away with his cutie, as Dick put it. The Italian maestro led the dancing, at one point clearing the floor to give a solo exhibition. <laughs> 